Welcome to the Agents of Innovation podcast, where we feature conversations with entrepreneurs, philanthropists, and artists. Well, we are here in Orlando, Florida, where I've lived the previous five years before I did this little uh, stint off to Guatemala, and we are here at Christner's Prime Steak and Lobster for the 100th episode of the Agents of Innovation podcast, and I'm here with an amazing guest that we're going to hear from today, Gerard Kelly. Gerard, thanks for joining us. I appreciate you having me. Well, uh, Gerard, before we get started, you know, normally when I uh, do these podcasts, I, I interview uh, the guest, and then I go back and I pre-record a, uh, a, a, an introduction to each episode, but I'm, I'm just doing that right now. So we just got right into the, the episode, and one thing I want to talk about is... Um, First, uh, thank everybody who listens to the Agents of Innovation podcast, and thank all of the uh, 100 guests that I've had on the, on the podcast, because I know uh, for people like you, uh, you're super busy, you're running companies, uh, you're flying all over the world, you know, and, and I get a lot of people that, you know, again, they spend their time to, to sit down and talk about some of the things that maybe they're not used to talking about so much, but uh, a lot of people, I think, that are listening can learn from and so we, um, we just, you know, I just thank all of the guests that have done that. And, you know, when I got the idea for the podcast, I was working for a, a think tank that was headquartered in Tallahassee at the time, the James Madison Institute. I was on the board of a charity music festival called Rock by the Sea. And, you know, through both of those things and other, other social activities I've been involved with, I meet a lot of interesting people all the time. I meet a lot of entrepreneurs, philanthropists. Um, I hear, you know, I've met a lot of musicians and the common theme was really, I see them all as entrepreneurs and innovators. And I would go to a lot of meetings and uh, just, I would come away from meetings or conversations with people thinking, wow, I wish more people could have heard that person's story. And, you know, I, I must have said that a, a, a lot of times to myself over the years. And then one day um, I was turning on a podcast and I thought, actually, maybe I could start a podcast. And, and even if I just was recording the conversation, uh, people could uh, hear that person's story. And so it, it would be pretty interesting. So actually, what's funny is we're sitting here in December of 2021. It was actually seven years ago this month, December of 2014, that I did that, that I said that to myself, I should start a podcast. And I reached out literally that day, maybe within that hour, and, and called my friend Isaac Morehouse. Isaac runs a company called Praxis at the time, and now runs another company called Crash. They basically, you know, and Isaac had worked in a similar role as me, uh, had done development for a nonprofit free market organization. And it was, you know, then went off and decided, hey, I want to test this idea to see if young people who don't want to go to college would maybe, uh, you know, but still want to be an entrepreneur, uh, would maybe, you know, come on a program where they do an apprenticeship with an entrepreneur, right? So I knew that I knew that was his story. But I also know that Isaac's a man of a lot of ideas. He's one of those people you like, you know, if you have a good idea, you throw it, you bounce it off him. Picked up the phone and said, Isaac, what do you think about this idea of me having a podcast and interviewing some of these people? Oh, I think that's a great idea, Francisco. You should do it. And oh, I'll, I'll, I'll connect you with someone that will, uh, that will help you with the technical aspects. Because this was seven years ago. Now, like everybody has a podcast. But, uh, but uh, you know, I, I didn't really know what I was doing. Well, it took me like three or four months to actually uh, get it going. Uh, by that time, I called Isaac back. Uh, and I said, hey, uh, you know, I talked about you being on my podcast. Why don't you be my first guest? And he uh, agreed to do that, but also said, oh, by the way, you know, I liked your idea about starting a podcast. I started one. 
what? <laughs> so he already was like 10 episodes in, which, which told me something that I would learn from a lot of entrepreneurs. Entrepreneurs of, are, are people of action. Uh, they, they learn by doing and they just do it, right? And so here I was, you know, working as a development officer for a, for a policy organization, nonprofit, and I had all these other things going on. So it wasn't like my first thing I wanted to go, like spend all my time learning how to start a podcast. But I actually, by that time, I think it was April or so that we had of 2015, uh, the first, uh, you know, I had the first conversation on a podcast uh, that, you know, that was, that was a lot of learning for me uh, to do, but we, but we did, we just did it. And I said, you know, you're my friend, Isaac, if we screw up, we could probably just do this again. Right. <laughs> so, so anyway, he, uh, we went with it. It was great. Also on that podcast, um, uh, I, originally my first two episodes, my idea was, oh, I'll have an entrepreneur on and then I'll have a musician on and then we'll have a song by that musician played. Right. So I did that the first two episodes and realized I was shortchanging both people, especially the musician. Um, but uh, so I, I ended up changing the format to where we just have one guest. Sometimes it's a musician. Sometimes it's a, you know, an, a, an entrepreneur that's not a musician. But I, I came to really understand that these, these musicians were also uh, entrepreneurs. And so like they, sh they have their own story as well. But I would play one of their songs at the end of the podcast. So the very first episode, I had Nick Gill on as well. My friend Nick Gill, who's from Alabama originally, but he lives in Nashville, Tennessee now. And, you know, he had been a musician we had him on, I don't know, like 30-something episodes later, and he talked about also some of his acting he was doing. Uh, now, Nick is also in real estate, in, in, and he's still doing music and acting on the side. Um, and I've had many great conversations with Nick over the years, but he uh, agreed to be my first music guest, and we also played one of his songs at the end of the podcast. But the bigger thing Nick did for me was before I even recorded episode one, he actually created theme music for my podcast, not even knowing what the podcast was going to be just what I described it to be. So he came up with theme music for me, which I used for the first 30 uh, episodes as part of the introductory music to the podcast. Then what was cool is about 30 episodes in when I had Nick on again, uh, we, I actually was staying with him in Nashville and we, he has a little home studio and we actually, he, he took me in his home studio and we created new theme music for the Age of Innovation podcast together. And that was super cool because it also gave me an inside look into how music is created like we created something together that didn't exist you know uh, a couple hours before and actually it took quite a while to create this like 30 second thing so that was that was really neat but i had i had nick on that week i had his roommate on uh jordy searcy who's been on uh, i think he's been on uh, one of those the voice or whatever and so we we um uh you know we, we had a fantastic uh, conversation again with both of those guys uh and so i uh, just want to say thanks to nick but at the end of this episode um, this, this episode will end with a song by Nick Gill. I figured I was trying to think of wh which previous podcast guests I should use their music for this episode. And I thought, why not go back to the person who was the first musician, Nick Gill. And I, and, and Nick's latest release, believe it or not, is a song called Afraid to Go. And this year I, you know, I took my own entrepreneurial venture and, you know, after you listen to 20, 30, 50, 90, almost 100 entrepreneurs sitting across from you, you get inspired. And, and I think Gerard will inspire us today as well. But every time I, 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 I would listen to one of these um, entrepreneurs, I thought, wow, like I wish I could be doing something entrepreneurial like that. And so just the inspiration continued to build in me. And this, you know, uh, a year and a half ago, just when COVID was, was starting and shutting down, you know, gave me some time to think about what else I could be doing. And I hired my friend Carter Fowler to be uh, to kind of lead me through some branding sessions. And by the end of 
you know, the summer we came up with a full uh, concept for a community that would provide group coaching sessions led by some of the role models that I identified through the podcast. Um, and I had about 50 of them that have come into the community as featured innovators. And so we do monthly group coaching sessions. We have a book of the month club where we, we have a featured innovator come on and through a virtual event, uh, they lead us through the conversation about that book, but also separately every month we have the group coaching session on different topics. And also we started uh, group trips. And so in this past uh, fall in November, we did our first group trip and we did it to Guatemala where I had been living uh, almost all of 2021. It had a fantastic trip and we're going to have another one April 2nd through the 9th, uh, 2022. So if you want to uh, go on that, go to fearlessjourneys.org and you can um, you know check out uh, you know, the itinerary there and contact me and hopefully join us on a, on an amazing time. A full week in Guatemala will be at Lake Atitlan, Antigua and Guatemala city. Um, so it's a, it's a, it's a great time, but you know, I thought it was funny when I was looking at, Oh, what song of Nick's am I going to play? And I, and it's, and it's called afraid to go. And I was like, that seems like the inverse of fearless journeys. So, <laughs> uh, j- just a coincidence, but so we'll hear that song today. Uh, but and and anyway, check out everything about fearless journeys at fearlessjourneys.org. I also want to uh, pause to thank uh, my first sponsor of fearless journeys, and that is uh, my friend Dan Lesniak. Uh, Dan and his wife Carrie Scholl have a uh, really the number one uh, real estate selling team in the district Maryland, uh, DC, Maryland, Virginia area. Uh, and that is, um, you know, the or- Orange Line Living, but also he has the Hyper Fast Agent Podcast and the Hyper Fast Agent Coaching Program. Uh, so be sure to check that out. I'll put all that in the show notes. But I want to, I want to thank Dan Lesniak. He's also now developing condo units in uh, the DC area, so you can uh, you can invest in some of those with him as well. Uh, but he's got a huge team up there, and also spends part of his time where he and I both grew up, actually in South Florida. So. Um, but now we've got another amazing guest here. We're at episode 100, and uh, I just can't believe that, seven years later here. Um, and and we're starting off kind of interesting, because I think you could have been a great student for Isaac Morehouse's program, Praxis. Uh, Gerard Kelly is a dropout. Uh, he's, a, he's a college dropout. University of Central Florida, grew up in Orlando, um, and... But he also is huge in the video gaming industry. Now, we're going to ask him if he dropped out because he was playing too many video games. Uh, we'll, we'll, we'll think about that. But, uh, but also, he's been, um, he's been involved in a lot of different projects. He's also done some uh, broadcasting for eSports for, um, uh, for ESPN. And again, he was the co-founder uh, of NRG eSports. Had some really interesting... Uh, co-founders with him and some other business partners, you know, people like Andy Miller from the Sacramento Kings, uh, Shaquille O'Neal, who's a former Orlando Magic basketball player, but has played uh, in many for many NBA teams now. And uh, anyway, so um, he's also uh, just been involved in so many things. So a great innovator. I got to also meet Gerard in early 2021, just before I left for Guatemala. And uh, our mutual friend, Mark Urbanichek. So I want to thank Mark for connecting us, uh, you know, introduced us. And, and I got to hang out with Gerard for a bit. And I thought, I actually went back to, to Mark the next day and said, Mark, I've been thinking about who's like the perfect guest for the 100th episode. And this guy is, I think, a big deal in everything he's been involved with. But I don't think he's well known, you know, which is actually really interesting because most of the people on my podcast, they're kind of known in their own spheres, but they're not like hugely well-known uh, beyond that's not like i'm having steve jobs on the podcast right or or bill gates or something so but 
I think you're going to hear a lot more about Gerard Kelly. So, Gerard, I want to re-welcome you back uh, to the Agents of Innovation podcast. Sorry for my long monologue. Oh, no worries. Thank you for having me, and congratulations on your 100th episode. Thank you. Um, well, Gerard, uh, so tell me, uh, you know, one of the things I like to ask a lot of people on, on this podcast is what your first job in life was, and maybe maybe what you learned from it. It could be anything, anything like, like as a kid or whatever, uh, what you learned from it, and, and maybe maybe some things that still impact you today from that job. Yeah, I, uh, I had this job at, a, my first job was at a, at a movie theater, um, you know, basically doing everything, concessions, ushering, all, all that stuff. Um, and it was like this mom and pop uh, movie theater, and the they were very, very involved. You know, you would be cashing something out, and, you know, they would look over you while you were, you know, filling a bag of popcorn. And they did some really unorthodox things. Like, I'm pretty sure they were restocking popcorn bags after, uh, you know, after people used them and stuff like that. But uh, it was uh, it was interesting just to see the... You know, I don't know if you know anything about movie theaters. The business model's super, you know, the, the margins are super thin. The money's made off of concessions and stuff like that. And the struggle that these people were going through and, like, the all of the work that they had to put in to make this business that wasn't entirely in their control successful was, uh, like, really impressive on me. So, yeah, it was, uh, I, like, swept floors and did everything. I remember... Uh, and they, how old were you about? 14, probably. Yeah. Yeah. For, like 14 and then pushing into 15. Um, and yeah. So that was... Uh, okay. So then you moved on. Uh, that, was this in Orlando, by the way? It was. Yeah. 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 We won't name uh, you know, the theater sure, if, sure. You, if you don't want to. Uh, but, uh, but so then you... It was, you in, Del- you it was sta- in Deltona. So. <laughs> oh, Deltona. Yeah. I actually can't remember the name Deltona, of it Deltona. Right so now, probably like one theater there, right? So yeah. They, they had like three screens and it was like, you know, like six months after, you know, Indiana Jones came out, they get Indiana Jones kind of deal. So for people that don't know the geography, Deltona's uh, kind of between Orlando and Daytona, the best way to say it, uh, you know, less than an hour from Orlando. But anyway, so you you stuck in Central Florida for college. You 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 started at University of Central Florida. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Go um, Knights, right? Yeah, Go Knights at the time. You know, when I went there, it was not a, they were not a good football team, you know, like. By the way, what, what year did you enter? Uh, 2000? 2000. Okay, yeah. I'm a few years older than you because I actually started college in 19, the fall of 1996. Okay. In it might have UCF. been actually 99. Yeah. That so was when I. Yeah. And I and then I, I I was one of the I was also a you can't finish. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Same. And so I, I went back. I ended up finishing at FAU, which some people say is find another university. But yeah. Uh, yeah. So it's it's, funny story. My dad actually did the exact same thing. Oh, that's funny. Yeah. So anyway, but you both you and I both didn't finish at UCF. But uh, but you okay. So what was your First of all, what did you go to there to study? What were you kind of interested in at first? And then why did you drop out? Yeah, so I did like my associate's degree uh, at Seminole. At the time, it was called Seminole Community College. Now it's, I think, Seminole State College or something. Um, And transferred over there. Um, Did, you know, like my first full year there as an economics major. And, uh, you know, it wasn't like, you know, it wasn't like a Mark Zuckerberg, like I had this great idea, so I'm dropping out of college. No, I was just like a really bad kid. Um, my, like, you know, I partied too much. I got into all sorts of trouble and, uh, eventually the school was just like, your, your grades suck and you're not coming back. Um, and I was like, that's fine. Like I'll go back to SEC and I'll improve my grades and, um, you know, life kind of happened. And so just kind of never went back. Actually, oddly, I'm taking classes there next semester for something totally unrelated. Oh, that's interesting. Personal project. Well, so Gerard, obviously, uh, you know, later you got big in, in the gaming industry. Uh, let, before we get all into that, when did you, what, what first piqued your interest in, in video games? I mean, did you play games as a kid? Yeah, so my dad was, uh, had worked for Siemens and Stromberg Carlson for, 
and I, mean, I think he's pushing 40 years, 45 years now. Um, and so we were like the first kids in our neighborhood to have like, you know, the old Tandy computers. And, um, you know, so I was playing like DOS-based games and, you know, kind of learning to program and, you know, like basic and, you know, re- really old languages that nobody uses anymore. Um, and so just, I immediately got into video games. Um, the game that kind of like really kicked it off for that, like was kind of a bonding moment for me and my dad was a... Uh, Warcraft. You probably know it as World of Warcraft, but the first iteration of that game was a, uh, it's called an RTS game, real-time strategy. You have two people that, you know, take, build resources or grab resources, build armies, try to kill each other. Um, and Great game for kids. You know, my, my dad actually had really clever ideas on how to improve the game when I was a, when I was a kid that later um, were implemented into different, you know, into different versions of Warcraft and what was later called Starcraft. Um and like the, the the founders of those companies who I who I know and you know I've done work with, I, I remember like expounding upon them. Like like this game changed you know like changed my outlook on all sorts of things. Um, so Warcraft is really like the start of that, and it was a very old game ago. I would invite my friends over with like you know big CRT monitors, right? And uh, you know you had to physically network your your computers, and you know then we would play. Um, after that came a game called Starcraft, and that's really where like. You you could argue that StarCraft is was like the first really really popular esport, um, and I kind of played in like a the really low levels of their competitive scene, and uh, yeah. So Warcraft, StarCraft, the Blizzard title, Mike Morheim, like you know my my personal hero. He uh, like I said, he founded Blizzard Entertainment and was later acquired by Activision, the people who make Call of Duty and World of Warcraft. Um, so yeah, so. Does that answer the question? Yeah, that's okay. good. So, so what happened from uh, from getting kicked out of UCF? What was your path from there? What did you do next? Um, I kind of bounced around. I I, I had tried to start a business. Um, I don't remember. Like I think most everybody in here is from Florida. There was this very brief period um, where these like electronic sweepstake games, like people would come in and play. Like, but uh, looked like slot machines, but they were really like a sweepstakes system. It was kind of this gambling business. Um, and yeah, I like took some friends and family's money to go start one of these businesses, and I made a killing. I just made a ton of cash, uh, and it was an all cash business. And I, you know, s- spent it in the most useless ways possible. Um, and ended up, you know, like I think my mom mortgaged like a she had a house that that she had, and she I think she you know borrowed sixty thousand bucks against it. Um, I don't think I paid her back on that sixty thousand dollars until I was in my thirties, and then I ended up having to buy the house. Um, but uh, so I made a lot of cash at that business, but ended up uh, ended up losing everybody's money because of my irresponsibility. And uh, so after that, I uh, I moved to Atlanta, uh, where my best friend was. Um, this is like right as like the heyday of World of Warcraft was happening. I was still doing competitions and stuff on the side. Um, and uh, you know, World of Warcraft really changed the the awareness of video gaming and you know really built a generation of video gamers that were you know you hear these good comments about kids spending 16 15 hours a day sitting at their computers playing video games world of warcraft started this and there was you know there was even like smaller economies built around it you had these chinese you know called them chinese gold farmers where a chinese kid would be able to make you know somewhat of a living by playing the video game and selling gold like back to players who didn't want to spend the time you know gathering gold and uh, so I got really into that. Um, 
I that, that game made and ruined friendships for me. Uh, the two guys that I moved up to Atlanta with, who were my two best friends, um, we played in the three v- three versus three arena circuit, and uh, one of them actually still to this day does not talk to me. Um, he was uh, we played a composition called Rogue Mage Priest, and he was the priest, and he was just so bad um, that I ended up kicking him off the team. And we later went on to make Gladiator, and which is like the highest, like the point, I think it's point zero three percent of like the highest rated competitive in. in in World of Warcraft, and uh, I never had a fight with my with my best friend. His name is Ricky. Until I started playing Warcraft, I actually like made out with his prom date, and <laughs> we never had a fight over it. And then he threw a chair at me, like in a game of World of Warcraft. <laughs> um, so I went up there. I ended up getting involved in a couple of small businesses. I owned a piece of a bar, um, and then like with my partner in that, we uh, I was able, like we kind of went after other bars to kind of turn around their business and stuff. Um, and that was right about the time that, uh, that League of Legends started to become really popular. Yeah. And they created a competitive system called the LCS and the NALCS, the League Championship Series and the North American Challenger Series. Um, these North American Challenger, the LCS teams were worth at the time we're talking, you know, three to $500,000 without the business behind them. And so, uh, this buddy of mine that I played Warcraft with, um, his name is Mike, uh, Rosenwimmer, um, really close friend of mine. He came to me and he was like, Hey, you know, I know you've had a couple of successful businesses. He didn't know how unsuccessful some of my other businesses have been. And he was like, <laughs> there is this industry in league of legends where people are taking these North American challenger series teams and, uh, and get like, there's they're promoting them into the LCS through the relegation system that riot had. And he's like, I would re- I'd really like to do this, um, but I'd like your help to do it. And so I was like, okay, I think we both took, you know, 50, 75 grand or something, threw, threw it in, like started hiring players, trying to really trying to figure it out. We like, you had to qualify to get into the Challenger Series. You had to get, you had to play in the Challenger Series, top out in the Challenger Series, and then play in the relegations in the LCS. And um, so we started doing that. And, you know, we were able to kind of flip some of these teams and, and, and make some money. Uh, it was an amazing experience. It was like the the ground level of, you know, like the bargain basement version of competitive video gaming as a business. And this was sort of like in the kind of early to mid two thousands. Is that? Uh, you know, it was like 2010, 2012. 2010. Yeah. Okay. So um, it's actually even like the competitive scene really evolved. Even like they they weren't worth money until even later than that. Okay. So uh, uh, before we go any further into sure. all this, because I'm sure if someone's watching this and they're in the and they're a gamer or listening to this and they're and they're in they know. I mean, there's so many people that play these games, follow these games, all these things, right? Um, but Gerard, like I grew up mostly in the eighties and nineties, uh, right. And, uh, so video games in my mind are like, you know, things like Atari, Sega, Nintendo, sure. right. And then somewhere where, I don't know, I was in high school. I think like it was probably the last time I pl- like really played any video games of anything serious. It was like, I had other things to you do. You were with serious. My life. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> it was like, had yeah. To, well, when I say serious, I mean like spending hours in front of a sure, video yeah, console. No. I lost my it, fourth and fifth grade to Mario. Yeah, like it yeah. came out and I don't remember anything else, but. My Mario parents had to take away, games. you know, we had time limits on these things. And, you know, my brother and I, who was two years younger than me, you know, we played competitive junior tennis. And so then it was also my dad going, okay, I think some of that is good for you, but some of that is draining your mind. So we need to get that out of here. So anyway, but at some point, I, you know, I think I just moved on, like high, graduate college, you know, go to high, or graduate high school, go to college, all these things. But I do know, you know, a lot of college kids play video games and things like that. It just wasn't for me anymore. Um, but then, you know, I don't know, one day in the last few years, somewhere, I woke up uh, and, and discovered that uh, 
that there's this huge gaming industry and it's not just kids playing video games in their you know bedrooms it's uh it's like a serious thing there's obviously ways we can now play games with people around the world right uh, simultaneously through the internet um but also there's competitions you've done some broadcasting for espn who's covered so the other thing that really that really blew my mind i don't know a few years ago learning that not only are people playing games seriously and competing and doing all these things, but people are watching people play video games, or I, that's the way I would interpret it: video games. But it's esports, right? All these things. Well, it's not even just esports; it is people just playing video games. Like Twitch, yeah. you know, for lack of a better word, invented that market, right? Yeah. So, um, so, so, tell can, can you tell us a little bit about? I mean, what you've observed with you know video games going from you know being developed in the eighties and nineties at very uh, at the very primitive level, I guess you could say, and it probably before that, you know, in arcades and things like that, um, to going to competition level and becoming this huge industry where people are competing, people are watching. Like, how did how did that happen? Yes, yeah, so it, it was a you know it was a natural progression, and, and it really all started with arcade games, right? Um, you know, people meeting at arcades to you know get high scores in Pac Man. Uh, Todd and I's friend uh, Jace Hall owns this company called Twin Galaxies, which is like the the record keeper for high score video games, mm. um, and uh, that, that like that's kind of really where all that where all that stuff started, and it kind of you know migrated from there. Um, you know the accessibility of the internet, and then you know allowing people to play you know like non centrally located really opened up the, like opened up for the world of esports, right? Like it esports couldn't exist without some guy in North America playing against you know, some guy in, in South Korea who's was infinitely better than he was, right? Before, you know, you had Todd or, you know, anybody sitting in a in an arcade and he was the best guy within a five block radius of the arcade. Now all of a sudden, you know, you can jump into a StarCraft game with, you know, somebody in another continent and you realize just how bad you really are. Everybody thinks and even today, you know, you hear all these I talk to people anecdotally and like, I'm the best among my friends at COD or, you know, I'm really good at this. And I'm like, dude, like <laughs> if you were that good, I would know. Like, there's leaderboards and, you know, like, the competitive industry. And by the way, when we say eSports, the video games are not just video games about sports. It's just, no, it's, it is eSport. It is a. It, it is, is now a sport. It is electronic competition. Yeah. Right? Okay. It, is, it is video game competition is, is what eSports stand for. Little E, if you publish it somewhere, everybody will, like, freak out on you otherwise. <laughs> little E, little S. It is a word, not a, not a like, proper like noun. Like a little I in iPhone or iMac. Yeah, but I don't know if the P in iPhone is capitalized. Nothing's capitalized yeah. oh, in esports right. unless it's at the beginning of it. People like legit freak out. Oh, right? I will watch that when I'm posting um, about this. Yeah, okay. I, like you'll lose all your credibility. <laughs> um, but yeah, so that really like you know like it created a revolution, and it you know like esports is is more accessible than I, I was. I try to use this analogy a lot. Um, you know, there's if I'm sure everybody here is a sports fan or a basketball fan. You know, the reality is you're never going to wind up in a pickup game at your, you know, I used to play basketball in my elementary school, like after after school, Shaq's never going to show up there and come dunk on you, right? Um, you know, you're never going to hit a baseball with Aaron, I don't, I wish I knew more sports personalities, A-Rod, right? Um, but if you play enough video games, if you play enough networked games, you know, Fortnite, League of Legends, I mean, there's a thousand games, a thousand different games. You're going to wind up in a game with Ninja or Nade Shot or, you know, somebody like Temper or, you know, Reginald. Um, so, like, the accessibility of that and, like, it, it creates a community where where sports, like, 
isn't necessarily able to do that. Yeah, right? you know what's interesting is I feel like in this whole world of social media we have and stuff now too, it's a little a little bit like people are can be a little more accessible. Like I can I can maybe tweet at a celebrity. And, you know, 9 out of 10, maybe 99 out of 100 times, they're not going to tweet at me. But sometimes you get the reply. they will. Yeah, yeah sure. You get a reply or something or on Instagram or something, right? Um, so, you know, that's kind of interesting how th- the internet has created a little bit more accessibility. <laughs> sometimes it's not, it's not in great ways, but it's uh, in this example, it's, that's kind of cool. Um, so, you, so tell me, you got into this, you, we heard your story about, uh, you know, ha- getting involved with th- these games with your friend in Atlanta mm-hmm. and... How did you then go? You, you. Uh, my understanding is within this world uh, that I'm a little uh, more ignorant about. But you, you've got teams mm-hmm. and competitions, and you owned uh, some teams. How did you get to these stages where you got involved as a uh, as a business person? Sure. Yeah. When, when I when I realized that uh, that I was not good enough to be a real com- you know professional competitive player in any game, um, and I like you know, I regularly get made fun of for how bad I am by, you know, my other friends who are pro players. You know, if I'm playing with, like, my other friends, like, oh, you're so good at this game. Like, you uh, you can do these things that I can't do. And, like, then I go play with my really good friends who do it for a living, and I just you know, I get dumped on. <laughs> um, but uh, when I realized that, um, you know, like, I wasn't going to be a pro player ever. Um, and my friend Mike came to me, and he was like, I'd like to try this. And I saw, the you know, kind of the business model behind it. And we just kind of ran with it. It was something that I was doing on the side. I had some other businesses going. Um, and it really just like kind of snowballed. Um, and right about like at this time, like, you know, Riot was, I think like they had something crazy, like 210 million active monthly users. Right. And so, and it was a free to play game, but they were, you know, they were, you know, making, I think they sold a 10 cent for a couple billion dollars, like the first 50% of their company. And so VCs really started to like, kind of, kind of look at the scene and, um, because of that, you know, Riot and a, and a handful of other games started talking about franchising out their esports leagues because, you know, they have the game as a business, right? It's a development studio produces the game. Their job is to engage players, and then on the other side, um, they have the, their competitive scene, which is owned by the company and supported by the company, but not really regulated. There's at the time, you know, there's no agents or you know, I think lots of professional players are getting paid a couple hundred dollars a month. I think we paid. Like on my Challenger Series team, we paid them a couple hundred dollars a month, and you know, put them in a you know, put eight kids in a house to, wow. you know, and you know, made them play video games all day. <laughs> um, and so, right right about that time, like like I said, like venture capitalists were starting to look at you know real investors, um, and that's when I kind of realized I'm like, this is probably going to turn into a business. Now there were, there were people way earlier than me. You know, you have Sam from Fnatic, you know, Andy from TSM. Uh, Hector from Optic, um, you know, these other like titans of industry, Adam Apicella. I mean, I could list a hundred people who are, you know, they're, they, they were really, really early into the space, Richard Lewis and Sir Scoots, these people. Um, and they, you know, either, you know, saw the industry or saw like the, the benefit of business. I, I lucked out in league, um, with, with, like with, with the Challenger Series teams, A, we were able to flip a couple of teams, um, and, we were going through one of the seasons and uh, we had relegated a couple of teams and we got into the like the pro league relegation system. Um, and I had beat out this other guy's team and it turned out this other guy was Martin Screlly. Um, and he, I, I, I will preface with, I had no idea. And this is before he became infamous for the Daraprim stuff and all that stuff. But way, obviously way before he went to prison. 
Um, but he was just some rich guy, you know, worth a few hundred million dollars. And, you know, turns out he'd been playing League of Legends for years. And so he had kind of come and was like, you know, how much would it take for you to drop everything else that you're doing and do this full time? What kind of budget would you need? You know, like normal business stuff, right? And uh, so I said this. And, you know, I think two days later, me and Mike were on a plane to L.A., you know, leaving what we were doing on in the other sides of the country and, uh, you know, we were making the push to make it into the into the LCS so that we could eventually capture a franchise league. We didn't know that that's not how the franchise teams were going to be given out anyways, but neither did anybody else. You know, that's when uh, that's when everybody really started to get into the space. I think I was just a little bit older than a lot of people. So um, I was other business people just kind of, you know, kind of thought, thought that I was an easier fit after the whole Martin Screlly thing. And we actually lost that relegations uh that that like we didn't we did not promote um and that was like happened to be right around the time that like the Daraprim stuff was going crazy and you know Martin was being really stupid and nuts and you know running his mouth to senate and all this stuff and yeah uh, he ended up like I actually got, I he got I don't want to say he got me sued but his like some of the actions got me sued in that company he had like signed a contract with somebody that I didn't know about and actually they didn't sign a contract there was a verbal agreement for him to do work and and this is with, uh, was this with Team Imagine? It's Team Imagine, yeah. yeah. Okay. Um, and uh, so that, like, right, that, that went away. You know, Martin stopped funding the company and went to prison. <laughs> um, and, uh, but there was a lot of other investment, you know, there's a, a lot of other investors and, you know, VCs kind of circling the space. Um, and so Mike and I kind of talked about it and I was like, well, I'm going to take a chance on this. Um, and I, I ended up going to this conference to speak at this uh I mean, it was in San Francisco somewhere, and like it was an esports conference. Um, and a friend of mine was like, "Hey, I'm meeting with this guy um, who um, he's looking to invest in the space, and you know, he might invest in mine, but like, why don't you come come to this meeting with me?" And so I did. Um, I don't remember if we met together with him or if I ended up meeting separately, but it ended up being Andy Miller, um, and you know, he was a owner of the Sacramento Kings, Quattro Wireless, which sold to, to Apple. Um, and he was really talking to me, this guy Noah, who went on to go found another brand that's as big as uh, NRG called the Immortals. Um, and this guy, Chris Badawi, who ended up like getting really pushed out of the space for some crazy stuff. Um, and uh, So Andy Miller, uh, was he, he was... Um is it my understanding? Is he the is he the guy that helped give Steve Jobs the idea about the App Store? Yeah, so he had this company, Quattro Wireless, which was like an advertising system. Yeah, um, and you know I, that combined with you know a hundred other elements, I'm sure, um, you know, kind of turned into you know how they monetized and created the App Store and all that stuff. Um, I'm sure there's way better literature than I can explain on it. Yeah, um, but uh, he's got. But, that, some... but these are the orbits you're running in now. Now you're you're running in orbits with people that you're co-founding. Uh, this is this is the beginning of NRG Esports. Yeah, this is like how NR NRG formed. Like I said, I like met Andy. We we kind of talked, and um, you know, he had, he was also talking with Noah and a couple of other people, and um, I was also. I mean, there's a handful of other people. I had, you know, um, I hadn't met Rick Fox at that point, but. Uh, you know, I was interviewing with, like with a handful of other people, and um, Andy. Uh, Andy's this guy. Like he's he's he he always said like I'm too early into everything. He's like you know I was too early into the mobile ad space, so I sold it to Apple, right? Um, he uh, 
he thought he was too, and he was he was too early, and he's and he's you know he's currently the CEO of NRG, right? Um, there's been a couple of other interim CEOs, and he was co CEO with uh, with Hector. And um, you were the CEO at one point. Yeah, initially. Yeah. Um, and uh, um. So, yeah, what, he, so was that your first time being the CEO? I mean, other than running a bar or something like that? Yeah, like yeah. A, a company? I, I like, yeah. Outside of like what Team Imagine was, like yeah. it was, uh, and I had a couple of other successful businesses and I made a little money, had certainly lost a bunch of money. Um, this was certainly like the, you know, the biggest thing that I had done. And there was tons and tons of issues. And, and tell, tell the audience, I mean, some people, you know, maybe listening know uh, a bunch about NRG, but tell, tell the audience a little bit more about, I mean, the the space that energy uh, occupies and 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 the role that it played so, in esports. So it was, but it, it was it was founded at the same time as two other really large teams, the Immortals, like I was just saying, and then Rick Fox's team, Echo Fox. Like I, I actually pretty sure we were all like founded literally on the same day. Like if I remember correctly, <laughs> like our like our incorporation papers all matched. Was uh, this because you were all at the same like conference type we, thing? No, we or? were all planning to compete in the. Uh, in the next season of the League of Legends LCS. So we'd all kind of like put it together at the same time. I remember like all three of us went to our first owners meeting. I remember the first time I met Rick Fox, I was on a, God, I'm such an idiot kid. But uh, you know those like hoverboard things that they had? I was like running it around the Riot Studios. And I remember like, like everybody was like talking to this guy and he's, he's like six, how, how tall is Rick Todd? It's like six, seven. The guy's a monster, right? Right. And uh like I remember, like like rolling up to him and being like, "Hey, you know, I'm I'm Gerard," and he's like, "Oh, I am Rick." And like I was like, "Yeah, like I, you know, like we were in the owners meeting together." And it was, uh, I, I think I was the first owner to have been like, "Hey, like congratulations," right? Right. Um, and we developed a you know a years long friendship. Um, so like NRG got a lot of traction because of like so Andy Miller uh, owned a piece of the Sacramento Kings, and so does Shaquille O'Neal. And so he, you know, like he's he was the outreach there to to A Rod and Shaq and eventually J Lo and Marshawn Lynch and all these like just you know really popular sports people, um, and so we, like we became popular because of that. And then we actually we did horribly in the LCS. Our first <sighs> season was really good, and then the team fell apart. Uh, and I like wasn't actively managing the LCS team, and uh, because of like a bunch of just internal drama and things like that. Uh, is it does it run a little bit like sports? I mean, where uh, your team is more lucrative if they win. I mean, no, like what a, you're a thousand percent. Like if you look at, and there are people that could argue both ways, right? Like at the end of the day, like the monetization method is very similar, right? You're selling sponsorships, you're selling broadcast rights, and in, in the case of like the LCS teams, you actually didn't own the broadcast rights. Riot does, which is a super big complication, which is why franchising eventually became a thing. But if you look at like TSM, it's a they're a legal. They're probably the most relevant League of Legends team, despite and they and they for years they always won the North American, like the North American scene, like the L, the LCS, um, along with Cloud Nine and like those the the teams that have a long history of winning have the higher valuations if you look at it. Um, TSM probably being the, I would say the second largest like from a from a cap perspective. I know Phase just raised it a. Uh, uh, like a billion dollar, like a billion dollars through a SPAC, um, but like Phase is not just esports. Like Phase is this is this brand. It's a you know it's a like it's it's more than just video games. You know they have like LeBron James's kid as a member of their team, right? Um, but like from a straight esports perspective, which is TSM, like they're probably like the largest market cap team. 
Yeah. So, um, so having celebrities though, uh, what what role did people like Shaquille O'Neal, A. Rod? I mean, were they just investors? Were they participants? Uh, how did what so, was what was the role of having them there? I, they, you know, they were all advisors to the company, and you know, like you could. Um, you could, you know, reach out to them if you needed to. Um, Shaq was probably the most active. You know, he, um, at the same time that he was doing his, I think it's TBS or TNT, the, the show that he did with Rick uh, and Charles Barkley. Yeah. Um, is, that, is it TNT? Yeah, 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 one TNT? of those. Yeah. Thank you. TNT, um, NBA on TNT or something. Yeah, yeah. So at the same time, TNT launched this E-League, which is a competitive CSGO league. Um, and Shaq really dove into it. Um, and he, like, he was, he was super thrilled about it. I, Rick one day was telling me, you know, they were both on the same TV show together and, uh, Shaq ran up to Rick and Shaq was like, Hey man, we're, we're on the same team again. You know, <laughs> we're on the same team. And, and, and Rick's like, no, you moron. Uh, we're on different teams. Like I own a team and you own a team and, and we're going to fight. Like, <laughs> that's how it's going to go. And, uh, I think he called him a moron. Um, I wouldn't call a seven foot guy a moron, but yeah. he's so big. Like. <laughs> We, uh, I met him, the first time I met him um, was in, I think it was TwitchCon 2015, and uh, it was the first TwitchCon, and it could have been, the, I don't know, wh- whichever, whichever one it was, and like, he, I remember he grabbed one of my players, uh, his name was Nairo, and like, he picked them up, and like, like, kissed him on the top of the forehead, and you looked at him, like, his head and his whole body was just so big, you were like, and then like, you know, he, he shook my hand and gave me a hug, and it was just like he he was just massive. And I think like he like jabbed me, like he was like, Hey, yeah, yeah, good job, man. And like it hurt. I was like and at the time I remember uh Andy who was who was really close with him was saying, like, you know, he's in the best shape of his life right now because all he does is work out and, and enjoy his life. He's not he's not playing basketball. Um yeah, he's just an absolute ma- like not just height, he's just just big. He's yeah. just a, a massive individual. Uh, but he really dove in into the esports side. He uh, he later was responsible for NRG getting the general uh, car insurance sponsorship. Our Rocket League team is like has always been like the best Rocket League, one of the best Rocket League teams, and uh, so it's their title sponsor. You call it is is uh, is the general. So you were with NRG, and then I know I, I understand at some point later you 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 exited NRG, right? Yeah. And, yeah. Uh, and did you did you sell out part of your? I sold out all of my shares. All your shares. Um, and like kind of not at once, but um, I I don't own any of any of NRG now. Um, and it was it was right as like the the Overwatch League was kind of coming around. I uh, I didn't have a whole ton of faith in the Overwatch League. It's a, it's just a weird league, fun game, uh, but from a broadcast perspective, it's a very hard game to understand. Um, especially for somebody like I played the game from like the very early days of the game and I play video games constantly and I found it very hard to look at because you have like six guys on a screen, each with four different abilities, different colors. And it's just like, it's like watching, you know, a Picasso painting or a Jackson Pollock painting and, you know, in real time, you're like, what is going on here? Um, it's like you, like somebody like you watching it just makes zero sense. Right. Yeah. Um, and uh, there was just a bunch of other opportunities, and it had just kind of, you know, I was kind of like looking for something new to do. Um, yeah. And, you know, disagreements when, like, you know, with my, you know, co-owners and stuff like that. So did you did you stay in the uh, gaming industry? Yeah, so I uh, I sold that. I immediately went on, um, kind of trying to think of the first thing that I did. I met a, there's a handful of, you know, VCs trying to do things, and I kind of jumped on board to consult with them. Um 
Um, and then I got really interested at that point in this is right as like uh, PUBG. If you get any, if you play around Battleground, uh, still one of my favorite games. Uh, pre Fortnite, um, not pre Fortnite, but like b- before Fortnite became popular, before like it really blew up with Ninja. I got really interested in like the broadcast element of how people were digesting uh, digesting battle royales, um, and I ended up uh, going to work with these people who were trying to create a gambling product. Um, with uh, this billionaire investor named uh, Kerry Katz. Um, he like made his money doing like student loan stuff, so probably super predatory. Um, <laughs> and he later became like a professional poker player. Um, so we ended up building a studio out inside of, inside of the Aria Hotel uh, where he was simultaneously doing poker products and, you know, esports stuff. And uh, we ended up like founding the World Series of Esports, which the name we ended up having to change because like, World Series is it's not the MLB that owns it it's somebody else that owns oh, it. Oh, interesting. And uh, so like we just abbreviated it to WSOE, held a whole bunch of competitions. Um, I moved on from that like as the early broadcasts were going on. Um, and then and then at what point I understand you did some um, some college esports broadcast. So so, so now the esports has gotten so big they have college esports. Yeah, so I, collegiate esports is a huge thing now. Is this for um, Okay, just to explain, is this collegiate esports? Is this for people in college or is this just a a league called collegiate esports? No, no, no it is for people in like, like okay. colleges have programs where like they're like they're esports clubs or and in some cases they're not clubs anymore, you know, they're ran by I feel the super old. I, I feel like I was just in college recently, but I feel like super old now, you know, uh, talking about how, I mean, we were yes. about the same age, so I yeah. Feel, yeah. Um and uh Yeah, so like like I said, like there there are colleges now that have esports degrees and um, you know certifications and and apparently and, the college you dropped out of UCF is like one of the big gaming colleges now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Made, them in, in full sale, like just yeah. being right next to each other. Full sale. I think full sale has like their whole own little arena thing. Um, I've never been to it. I've wow. talked to the people at full sale a handful of times. Um, so yeah, um, I had uh, I had good relationships with people from you know Blizzard and Riot and a uh, handful of other places. And as I was when I was with WSOE. Um, I was talking to the ESPN people there who ESPN's is like their business is fascinating. Like the, they own all the production rights to the bowl games, but not necessarily the broadcast rights. And so I ended up going up to Charlotte to go meet with like, you know, some of their executive staff and um, kind of pitched them this collegiate esports championship that we ended up, that ended up taking off. Um, and uh, I, we were doing a bunch of other productions at the same time, but it was this like a whole twelve week program, and then turned into like an hour TV show. We ended up doing like uh, a big LAN event, um, which is you know, like a live attended event at uh, at this like Comic Con esque convention called Comic Palooza in Houston. Um, I think it probably still has like the highest viewership metrics for any of like the the college events on on Twitch. Uh, it was put up for an Emmy. Um, I don't think we won. I think hey, I you nominated for an Emmy. I mean, who would have thought in esports? I mean, there's bunches of them now. I, kn- yeah. I know people who have won Emmys for. Uh, so so uh, okay. So I guess we've migrated in my mind from people play video games to people compete in video games to people watch people compete sure. in video games to people broadcast about to people who are watching people playing video games. Right? Yes. Is this all okay? Yeah, yeah. I don't know where this is going, Gerard. <laughs> I and and you know now with like the metaverse and web, you know web. 3.0 or whatever they're calling yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, let's I mean let's let's mention that because I understand that part of uh, what you're doing now is uh, you're you're the co-founder 
actively involved in software, a software simulation company called Havoc, H-A-V-I-K, Havoc.us. Uh, and you all make virtual reality training software for special operations soldiers. Yeah. Um, so how did you get involved with that? Sure. I heard so it's a crazy story. It's it's a it's absolutely nuts story. Um, I have to leave some names out because it uh it got really crazy. Um, so one day uh, I had this other person who like who I've done a bunch of business with. He's uh, um, he's over at Activision and he would regularly kind of throw me deal flow um, that he wasn't able to take advantage of because of his employment or something. And he said, Hey, I met this guy. You've got to go down and meet him. Um, and so I was in LA and so me and Todd sitting over there, um, Todd, did you come? I can't remember. It was, you know, oftentimes when you're with me, I just forget that you're there. Um, yeah. By the way, I think I forgot to tell the audience. I mean, I mentioned that we're at Christner's prime steak and lobster, but we also have, uh, some, some people here listening too. So, which is, I wanted to do something special for the hundredth episode. And, uh, and so thank you for everybody that's came. So, uh, yeah, your, your friend over here, Todd, uh, who you're referencing. Yeah. Uh, uh, so tell us b- about this havoc story. Yeah. So we hop on a train and we go down to go meet, uh, this guy, Brad Den in, uh, in San Diego. Um, and it's at some other VC firms kind of office that he had, that he had, uh, met, and uh, he, you know, pops open the the HTC, you know, light light stands, and you know, he's got his, you know, his whole VR headset. And this guy is a Navy SEAL um, that did a very specific job on a Navy SEAL on a on a, on a SEAL team called a JTAC, a Joint Terminal Air Controller. Um, and these are the guys who, like, you know, from a couple hundred feet, calling a bomb strike in the middle of a battlefield to go blow up a building or you know, blow up a dude, right? Yeah. And. Uh, just the nicest guy with the best hair you've ever met in your entire life. And he went to, he went to university for, um, for game development. Right. And so this job in special operations and like specifically he was on a SEAL team that do it. Green Berets have their own and the air force has their own is a very technical and complicated job. Um, so it's very cerebral as opposed to not that every job that a Navy SEAL does isn't cerebral, but he's not. His job isn't isn't to kick in a door, right? His right. job is to make a difference on the battlefield by you know blowing up a you know moving tanks or buildings or something like that. And he goes on to explain how the training for this is done in a couple of different ways, which is very expensive um, or ineffective. One of which was this dome system, which was like a series of projectors. Uh, where the guy went in and like used an Xbox controller to like call in bomb strikes, and this guy's still in the Navy at this point, right? Like at, in Navy Special Warfare as a SEAL, and uh, he's like, you know, the Navy allowed me to develop this in partnership with Lockheed, but the whole thing got shut down, and like the you know the codes you know useless and not not usable like in any market or whatever. Uh, but now I'm able to do this outside as I'm transitioning out, and I'm uh. I'm starting a company to do this. Um, you know, I hear tons of pitches every day, right? Um, you know, for different, for various different businesses in the technology space. I own a handful of other businesses. 99 percent of them, I'm like, okay, I'm, you know, I'm nice. I give you your 15 minutes, and you know, like, I kind of move on, or you know, I pass it off to somebody else, one of my other business partners who's more experienced in the particular field that I am. Um, and he goes through and he explains how like this, like these Navy SEALs are they're they're only able to deploy for a very short amount of times compared to their regular teams because of the certification process. These guys are like, some of them are air traffic controllers. Some of them have these wild certifications, right? So they deploy, and, you know, a SEAL team deploys with the same group of guys over and over, right? But these guys have to kind of bounce in and bounce out. And he's like, so I developed this VR system that's going to be portable, that they can take to Afghanistan with them and train on it. And I was just 
super hyped. Like I said, you can ask Todd. I was super excited about it. I've, without due diligence, without anything, I wrote the guy a $500,000 check. And I was like, let's do this. I'm on board. Let's go do everything. And, uh, you know, we get back on a train and I'm super excited. And uh, I get home the next day or two or three days later and uh, I'm like, hey, I'm like, you know, can I get the corporate documents and all that stuff? And, uh, you know, just the, just the stupid paperwork that nobody wants to pay attention to. And uh, he sends it over to me and I'm like, hey, I read it and I'm like, oh, no. <sighs> and it's like he doesn't control his company. Like the people who is this like VC firm, like built the entire structure to his to his company like all the like you know all the formation documents and you know he was really just a paper tiger ceo and he didn't know this guy's a navy seal the guy's a fucking war hero and you know he just like he thought that the lawyer who brought him this paperwork was his attorney and it wasn't it was these guys attorney and mm. uh so i'm like hey i'm like two things I, I, I give him a call and i'm like hey brad i'm like a couple things <laughs> um like i need you to give me my money back um which I'm happy to give to give back to you at some point, but I don't even think like you know you're legally allowed to accept this from me. And I explained to him the situation, and he's furious. He's like, "No, that's not." He's and I'm like, "Look, dude, I'm like, I'm gonna go down the contract with you, and I'm gonna show you this stuff." And so for weeks, I started going through it, and it all kind of culminated into this. Um, he told the VC firm who kept promising that he was gonna put in that they were gonna put in money, but never did, but took a significant chunk of his money for it, um, and. Uh, set up a meeting with me and them and it was really like a hey like we're coming in here to arbitrate like this is like this is unconscionable this is not gonna happen and, like it turned into a screaming match like there was another guy from the special operations community that i was literally like you need to shut up like you guys have stolen this company from him and he's like we haven't stolen the company and we're people i'm like well if you're people of your words sign this document that says you're giving brad his company back because we're not leaving until you do otherwise like I'm bringing this to my other business partners. I'm going to start calling everybody else that I know about you. Like, I'm going to do this. Like, I'm going to, I'm going to mess your life up. This is ridiculous. And uh, it ended up all ended up well. Like, they kept trying to come back and say, pay us to get out of the company. We'll do this. And I was like, no. I'm like, just stay strong. Like, I, uh, I, had, I, I had to hire an attorney for him because, like, weird you know like it was his company that he was that he's going back and forth about the reality is i should have never been involved in the conversation like if i was them i'd be like get out of this office like you're not a shareholder like yeah. why are you like why are you even talking to these people and uh so we ended up getting like getting them out long story short i know you're trying to I, i'm probably talking too long about this we ended up getting this these things called small business innovation research grants and now the company is doing really well we're delivering systems to socom and it's just a and we're developing new products and probably the so, most exciting so, thing that i do so Sorry. you mentioned earlier before that before the fact you shouldn't have been in the room because uh, you weren't a shareholder yeah. uh, uh, that you didn't do your due diligence right yeah. on this no. company you were just what was it? You were just so excited about what you saw yeah, he, in this? And you were just like, yeah, him, I want to like, invest? Like the story of this guy, he's a Navy SEAL who did this JTAG job that prior to this went to school to be a video game developer. Like you saw this this guy's entire trajectory and what he wanted to do and what he wanted to be. And like it's impossible to stand in a room next to this guy and not believe in him. And, and it wasn't that he was doing anything unethical. It was that he was. Uh, he didn't there know. Was some, there was some, you know, it, it finagling was, I, from I, him. I feel like the law firm that they dealt with, like, yeah. like there, we, we should have filed bar complaints, and I continually encouraged him to do so. Mm -hmm. And he was just like, I just want to move past it, which I totally respect. I'm way more spiteful than that. I would have, you know, I would have totally handled it a different way. Um, but they took advantage of him. They took advantage. Yeah. And, like, I've heard other stories of them doing the same thing. And, and it happens. Like, the VC world, you know, like, I can't say I haven't done similar things, right? Like, it's just the nature of business. You know, I've 
you know, how contracts get signed and how things get structured. You know, it's so. So speaking of that, uh, going back, you had you had some dealings with uh, Mr. Martin I can't, can't, Screlly, Screlly, yeah, yeah. Martin Screlly, who's in prison. Uh, you've had you so uh, through business, right? Uh, I mean, how, what would you advise people who might be listening who are either entrepreneurs or aspiring entrepreneurs on first of all having good principles and holding fast to them, but also being cautious in in dealing with other people, maybe people you might partner with or invest with, with um, and, and what, what what kind of precautions maybe should they take uh, when dealing with people? Because, because yeah, I mean, money comes along and it's uh, it's enticing sometimes to, to, to get into some things or great opportunities look, look great. That maybe what kind of diligence should people be sure. doing? Yeah, and so I, I, I coincidentally had this exact conversation with a nonprofit that uh, that I was connected that I was connected to, um, you know, I, and I've kind of been on both ends of this, right. I've been, you know, the guy who signed a bad contract because I didn't know any better, uh, or, you know, I was presented a deal and at surface level, it looked great. And, you know, when you get down in the weeds of things, it's not, I've also been the guy who is, you know, torn apart somebody else's business to get what I needed out of it. Right. Um, and like some of the best pieces of advice that, that I can give about it is take your time. Like every entrepreneur and like, you know, especially with like how like this hustle culture of things is, is so predominant among like young entrepreneurs. Um, like take your time, get to know somebody. There's no reason to rush into anything, you know, really get to know somebody who you're, you're going to sign a contract with, you know, like there's another contract that you sign and they're terrible contracts or they can be, and they're called marriages. And that's, and that's what a lot of these corporate, corporate relationships are. Um, not that marriage is bad. I'm just saying, like it's a it's a it's a contract, it's a, right? Yeah, you're 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 in it, right? Exactly. Yeah. And you know, oftentimes, you know, when somebody comes to you, and again, I've done it. You say this deal's on the table for 48 hours, or we have to execute on this immediately. In my experience, anything that has that sort of limited kind of window for success is not worth it to do, or is fake, or there's once you pull back the curtains on it, it's it's not right. That's a it's a sales tactic. It's a it's a fleeting business idea. You know, really just get to know, get to know the people and, you know, hire an attorney. Always have an outside attorney. I don't care, you know, if you're signing a real estate contract or whatever it is, the $500 or $1,000 that you're going to spend to have an attorney look at something provides a level of protection that you're just not going to get. And, and, and probably make sure that attorney's pretty independent of the other party, right? Th- don't don't have yeah yeah D- don't ever let somebody come up and say this is your attorney and you know like attorneys assign like sign these things called engagement agreements or right. they're pretty standard but uh, yeah you know um, uh, Gerard speaking of uh, you know I mentioned tennis earlier I just and what you were just talking about I just I just watched uh, I guess it's on HBO uh, the King Richard uh, about the Williams sisters and their father and. Uh, you know, it's interesting because here's Venus Williams. This is a, a part of their story. You know, 15 years old, hasn't even played her first professional tennis match yet, has all the endorsement deals coming in. Nike is sitting right across from her, offering her $3 million before she even played her first tennis match, uh, her professional tennis match. And uh, and here, here they are. I mean, a, a, a family who, you know, just was in Compton not too long ago, uh, you know, five kids, all this struggling out, and this contract's presented, and, and they said, we're just going to wait. The family did. I couldn't believe this. I was, I, you know, and we know a little bit of the story. Now they had some other deals that they had already taken up with some tennis coaches and things like that. So they were doing pretty well by that point, but $3 million. And then 
They offer her $5 million uh, the next day, and she still says no. Well, nine months later, Reebok came around and offered her $12, $12 million. So nine months, that was a pretty good uh, return yeah, but on investment. Yes. Shoes. But, it, but it goes to your point, and that really, I really had a lot of more respect for that family when I watched this, but uh, to be a little patient in, in some of these deals, right? Yeah. You don't have to rush into it. If you're, if, if everything's as good as, as you say or whatever, right? Sure. Things, yeah, things yeah, might like pay your off. independent analysis of it, you know, like you're – you know, there's a lot to be said about gut gut feelings and gut reactions and like your own in you know your personal analysis of a situation, right? You know, anybody who's sitting on the other side of a contract from you, you know, ultimately has their best interest in aim, you know, in in mind, right? right? Um, that's not that's not to be said. You know, I like one of the I get asked by you know people in the financial space a lot or in the entrepreneurial space a lot. You know, like what other advice? And you know, one of the core things that I always say is take risks. Like there's, there's no real entrepreneur who hasn't like, you know, and I, I don't, like I said, I don't necessarily have to describe myself as an entrepreneurial entrepreneur necessarily, but you know, like I have leveraged my credit, my everything that I've owned, everything that my friends and family have owned to go, to go do things. And, you know, people who want to, you know, lots, lots of people have, you know, real estate ambitions and things like that. And it's like, dude, like go leverage your credit. Right. So, you know, so speaking of that, Gerard, uh, you know, the name of my company here, that I just started fearless journeys. Yeah, yeah. One of the reasons I started that Keeping this was tough. because a lot of pe- a lot of people have fear, anxiety. They're uh, they're averse to risk, you know, um, and and yet one of the things I've seen with a lot of entrepreneurs, especially people I've interviewed on this podcast, uh, is they seem like they're willing to take risks. They're they're willing to try. The, you know, many of them have failed many times in different things. Um, and yet, so what, there's this like mindset shift I think that people need, but what, what was it for you, uh, about just willing to s- just put it all on the table, t- take the risk, take, take the, yeah, I, I've had a li- like, no, no kidding. I've had a lifetime of failure. Right. And you know, it, like, like I said, it started with university. I've been in every possible type of trouble you could possibly imagine. <laughs> right. I, I've had a, there was a point in my twenties when I think my credit score was like 500 or something. Right. Um, and like you realize that like, you know, like you're still alive, right? Like failure is not the end. And, you know, you can always, you know, try to get back up, dust yourself off, you know, and, you know, try to try to take a swing again. And I tell people, like, you know, what happens, you know, somebody wants to start a restaurant or, you know, and restaurants are complicated businesses or whatever the business is. I'm like, well, what's the worst that can happen? You go leverage your credit. You maybe borrow a little bit of money, whatever it is. And you go broke. You declare bank, and I've, ne- I've never declared bankruptcy, uh, mostly because it just seems like a complicated process, uh, and I never had to go that far. But like, you declare bankruptcy, you you know, you can't get a car loan for a couple of years, like big deal. Like it's a seven year process at most, and like the amount of things that you're going to accomplish in that seven years, anyways, it you know is quite possibly worth the risk. It's better than looking back and going, man, seven years ago I could have owned this thing and I could have done this. I could have made this investment. I could have taken this risk here, and then you're sitting there being like, "What could have been this?" And 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 that's worse than doing it and failing. Yeah. So and my my like I said, I have really failed at lots and lots of stuff. I mean, like really catastrophically. When I when I sunk that gambling business, you know, my like I think my dad wouldn't talk to me for a couple of months because you know I think I was like, "Yeah, I'm gonna use your money for this," and then you know I lost it. Uh, my mom mortgaged a house. Like I said, I ended up buying the house. But um, so, so also when you're getting into businesses and you're starting some of these businesses, have you um, 
Have you bootstrapped it? Have you taken, you know, family money, investors' money? Uh, tell me all the different scenarios of that. I've I've done it both ways. You know, I've very much bootstrapped businesses and you know, kind of built them to get off the ground. And even energy, NRG was was somewhat that. You know, I think we raised two million bucks initially to kind of get to get things off the ground. And uh, Andy Miller's a very detail oriented, intricate guy. Uh, and while he was like, you know, spend the money to do this, you know, spend it wisely, right? Um, and you know, despite his and I's disagreements, and you know, like. Either of our either of our flaws, like he's an extremely intelligent guy, and he and he, and he taught me a lot. Um, so I've I, I've done I've done it both ways, and then in my you know my some of the other current businesses, I watch uh, Patrick Sung Shong, um, the current partner in one of these joint ventures that I have. Um, you know, he's I mean he's he's, he's doing world changing stuff, right? He might qu- possibly be the first person to get the first T cell COVID vaccine on the market. He's testing it in Botswana right now. Um, he I think he's like the only doctor in the United States or maybe the world to have done like a pancreas transplant. He's the richest person in Los Angeles. Um, he's I this I think at some point he owns some crazy like double digit percentage of Zoom, right? Hmm. Um, and he does nothing small right he's a billionaire multi you know like it's it's kind of hard to calculate at that level of net worth um but he does nothing small like you go into a meeting with him and you know we're talking about you know this one event that we're gonna do or you know he owns the la times right and the conversation goes from you know this thing at the la times to you know these virtual reality products that we're going to do to how this video game this video game concept is going to solve a cancer problem, um, and just like money doesn't matter, right? It's it's more about you know the positive change that it can do. So I've kind of done it on both ends. Yeah. Um, so Gerard, uh, you you've uh, you've been around a bit. We talked about Orlando, Atlanta, LA. Where do you spend? Where ha- where has your uh, your life and your business ventures brought you in terms of places to live, places to see, and where do you spend oh, a lot I mean, of your time? All over the world. Uh, I mean, I have lived in Berlin. I've you know, had a place in Shanghai. Um, I guess lived is a is a vague term, but uh, if I've never had like a like a you know residency visa or anything like right, that, right? Yeah, I lived I, in Guatemala I've, this year. Sure. Yes. Like when I when I go to Antarctica this year, I will have been on all seven continents. Um, wow. Whoa, so, you're going to Antarctica? Yeah. Okay, uh, we're gonna get back to that. Um, yeah, January thirtieth. Um, so you know, L.A. and New York, I mean, all, all over the place. Um, and I kind of, I'm from here, so I kind of settled back, in, settled back into here, into Central Florida. Yeah, yeah. Well, that's great. Well, we're we're glad to have you back in Central Florida. And uh, uh, also, um, you know, what I know you're involved in some uh, some other things, such as search and rescue. Tell us a little bit about that and and how you got involved and and what some of the cool things you're doing. Yeah, sure. So. Um, I, uh, as I was, um, I told you the, the, the basketball player, Rick Fox on the sports team, I eventually got involved with, with them on the tail end of it to kind of help mediate some things and kind of, uh, and that's Eco Fox, Echo Fox, Echo Fox. Yeah, sorry, yeah. Um, sorry, sorry. All TV sports and, uh, people don't, don't, don't penalize me. So I've always had, you know, pretty weird hobbies. Um, you know, I'm sitting here right now. I have a broken foot cause I, I do some MMA training and kick somebody incorrectly. Um, but uh, I was at Echo Fox one day, um, and, you know, like I said, like it's the that whole Echo Fox situation was crazy, it, just like everything else it sounds like I talk about. Um, and I like, met a guy. Like, like MMA, yeah. Yeah. Um, I met a guy 
who has done all this stuff, you know, search and rescue stuff. He was like really an, you know, an outdoors kind of guy. It's actually, it's Todd. He's sitting right over there. Um, and he was like, Hey, I do all this stuff. And I'm like, man, I'm like, that's awesome. And I want to try that. And I, and I want to do that. And then as with anything else, it kind of, you know, I, I look at the, the business opportunity there, you know, and the philanthropic side of it, you know, how can I spend my time, you know, giving something, but possibly, you know, also have it be a business. And we looked into disaster response management stuff and a, a whole ton of things. And, uh, as I've kind of, you know, I'm older, I'm 40. Um, I, uh, I had a heart attack almost a year ago. Um, wow. and, uh, and you know, I, I, really I mean, with all the things you're doing, I'd probably have a heart attack too. Yeah, I uh, it's a pretty crazy situation. Um, I I remember I was having back pain, and I called my sister into my office, and I'm like, hey, I'm like, I like my back really hurts. I'm like, can you take a uh, like that Theragun to my back? And she doesn't. It gets real bad. And uh, I ended up. Long story short, I go to the hospital. I'm like, hey, I'm having back pain. The doctor's like, no, idiot, you're having a massive heart attack. I'm like, I came here for back pain, buddy. I'm like, and I have things to do tomorrow morning. So can we get this? Like, can we get this on the road here? And uh, you know, before the conversation was over, they had morphine in my arms, and you know, spent a few days in the hospital. Best sleep I ever got um, in the hospital for a few Hopefully, days. Yeah, it was totally not the healthy last now. Sleep you ever They've got. like yeah. taken me off of all my medication, and like I said, I'm like you know, I'm punching people three or four days a week, and doing search and rescue stuff, and any other you know, any other hobby. We have this. Uh, Todd and I found this charity called Crow. Um, they, uh, C-R-O-W? C-R-O-W. They, uh, they were like a ranger, con- like a conservation ranger organization. Uh-huh. And so we're going to go to Italy probably um, in June and August to train with these guys so that we can, then we can go to Africa and do some anti-poaching activities. You don't know my friend Nathan Edmondson, do you? I don't. You, you got I had him on this podcast and you got to, uh, he actually does this. I would love to talk yeah, to him yeah, then. Yeah, like, yeah. I, so, like, He's I, based I, in Utah now, but he was actually out in LA. He was a comic book writer and some of his comic books made it to the screen. Oh, wow. Uh, so, yeah, but then he got Todd involved in this. Uh, it's actually Eco Defense, ECO, Eco Defense. Okay. Eco Defense Group. But uh, I forget the, 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 the episode he was on, but it was a few years ago. And uh, uh, anyway, yeah, you're, we're going to have to pair you up because you guys, uh, Nathan yeah. Edmonds, you'll have to. You know, I, I don't have like a, a job per se yeah. anymore, right? You know, I like I have other people who thankfully run my, you know, run my, the companies that I have. And, um, I found, you know, like one of the things that I learned as a as a business owner, as a friend, as whatever, like I I've often found, you know, like always let the experts do the things that they're experts at, right? Uh I have a you know, a, a propensity for being able to bring people together and, you know, build a structure and then kinda let it let it move forward and I've I've found that it's just better for my businesses and better for me to let the you know, like the people who are professionals do the professional stuff. Yeah. Um, and so I, I have a lot of free time. So things like search and rescue, the, the crow organization or really anything that I, that I can, you know, morally get behind that I can donate my time to, because I have a, I don't say I have a ton of it, but so, so I was talking to Todd ahead of time and he says, you know, you don't just get involved with this stuff. You're actually out there. You'll just take a, a four by four one day or something and just, just go out to the desert and and find people. That was Todd and I's first, first kind of thing. He, uh, he was like, yeah, I'm like going out treasure hunting in this ghost town. I'm like, that's the weirdest shit I've ever heard of. Let's go. I'm in. And uh, so we And you're did. treasure hunting. Yeah, he was treasure hunting. He's <laughs> okay. like a nerd and he has a metal detector. I just wanted to go like go out and be away from people and, you know, go. Like I said, like, like he told you earlier, he, I was like, hey, I'm like, let me drive your Jeep up this hill. And he did. <laughs> that's like, you're an idiot because I'm going to wreck this. Um, but uh, 
Yeah, so just like I said, like you know, anything that I think that I can find that's fun, you know, that I that I, that I can morally get behind, um, you know, there's a the doing well or doing good while doing well kind of philosophy that I think that a lot of older business people take. Yeah, and I, I really subscribe to that. Like I said, I look at Pat Sung Shong, I look at some of my other business partners who are doing things to change the world. And yeah. like, I'll never do anything that big, right? I'm not going to invent the first T cell vaccine because I actually don't even know what a T cell vaccine is. I just know that it's better or something. I actually don't even know that, if that's true. Um, so yeah, I just want to you know do good. So, things. so whether it's this gentleman who's created the T creating the T cell vaccine for COVID, sure, or uh, whether it's Andy who, who yeah. helped develop what became the app store sure. in a sense. He was he was a little too early, I guess. But you you've you've been in the room and been in business with a lot of mm-hmm. amazing innovators. This is the Agents of Innovation podcast. So of course you're an agent of innovation yourself. But what have you learned from a lot of the innovative people that you've seen? I mean, what are some of the common characteristics that they embody that maybe somebody who's be- wanting to become an entrepreneur or become more innovative yeah. as an entrepreneur might employ? Yeah, so I I, I see like several, you know, common traits among all, all of these people but you know I, I think the the difference is you have the people who have vision and then you have the people who are able to execute on that vision um and those are oftentimes two separate qualities you, you see it a lot in like in you know new like you know startups where the founder is the ceo of a company and you know they have a very tight stranglehold over their business because you know they have the vision but like most of the times, the guy who's the who's the visionary of the company doesn't need to be the guy running the day to day of the company. Right. Um, and you know, the 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 common trait that I've seen among truly successful people is just like their ability to collaborate, their like their ability to be totally transparent and communicative. You know, you don't see these super wealthy, super successful people going in and, you know, preaching about things like they'll walk a room and they'll try to glean as much information out of everybody that they meet. Like the reality is, is everybody you meet has an experience you don't have that knows something that you don't know. Like I always assume that everybody that I meet is smarter than I am. And it's, you know, for me personally, it sets a really good tone for the conversation because then everybody knows that, you know, I'm the dumbest guy in the room. Um, but well, they say if you're the smartest guy in the room, you're, you're in, the in the wrong, wrong room, room, right? Right. Yeah. <laughs> and so I've been I've been fortunate or unfortunate or silly my entire life to have always been surrounded by people who are much more intelligent than I am, and I've been able to just continually learn from them. Um, you know, I look at uh, our two, not you, Todd, other people, um, two of two of his, our, our friends, uh, Rick Fox and this guy, Jace Hall, um, you know, they... Uh, they are constantly always trying new things and, you know, like really throwing something up against the wall to, to kind of see if it sticks. And, uh, you know, they don't let adversity face them and they're, they, uh, they just like striving to be like to have that kind of attitude is, is a, is a difficult thing to have. Um, and so, yeah, but like I said, I, I I think the core thing is, you know, you, you never walk up to, you know, like these real innovators and industry changers. You're, Elon Musk's your, you know, let's say, let's say Bill Gates, he's kind of at the end of his business career and is, you know, more philanthropically oriented, you know, or you like, you talk to a Buffett or something. I don't know if you ever like sat at one of his yearly, um, like the yearly Berkshire Hathaway recaps. Um, like these people, like they always have a desire to learn and they're not letting the arrogance of their success or their failures or, you know, the, who they are kind of get in the way of that. Um, 
Yeah, yeah. No, it's a true. constant learning process and a constant improving thing. One of my business mentors, like one of my very early business mentors, told me, and I'm going to screw these lines up, and I don't know if he got this from somewhere else. Um, he said, in order, you know, once a person has their basic needs met, you know, food, shelter, protection, everybody always wants to feel like they have the ability to grow. You're always learning something new, and then you always want to be able to impart that knowledge back to people and then give back to your community. Uh, and that's always really stuck. I mean, I've, I've screwed that up. Like I said, I've like, I, I don't think I've ever done anything and not screwed it up. Um, some things have just really lucked out. Uh, or, you know, I was, I was too stupid for the failure of it to bother me. Um, mm. So, yeah. That. Well, uh, Jordan, let's get to just a, a few last questions. I, sure. I really thank you for your time. And uh, But maybe a couple fun ones here for you. First of all, let's let's talk about Antarctica. What's going on there? Yeah, so... Uh, um, I, 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 I think we were discussing... You've been, you've been to all the other continents I've been to every other continent yeah. at, at some point in my life, mostly because of the video gaming stuff. There's, you know, there's annual tournaments in Australia, you know, Europe, Asia, Asia you know, Korea. South Korea is kind of the mecca for video gaming. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I belong to this... Uh, club 33, if you've ever heard of it, it's a, like a private Disney club. So I get access to some of these like expedition tour things that they do. And they're kind of the ideas in the next couple of years are going to close down tourism to Antarctica because of like the the shelf degradation that's happening. Again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't I'm, I just explained that incorrectly. Um, so it's my dad's birthday on January 30th this year. Uh, oh, cool! He turns happy birthday. Yeah, happy birthday, Dad. Um, he's turning 60 something. I'm not actually. I think he's 65 or something. Um, and so I. We booked this uh, this tour to Antarctica. We'll go spend ten days in Antarctica, seeing all like you know the the sightseeing stuff, plus like the research stuff that happens there. And so Antarctica, uh, which one is this? Is this the, it's the north? bottom one? It's the south. It's yeah. the South Pole. It's a the whole thing's a globe. I don't know. I don't. So. I don't know. And 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 so how do you get there? Yeah. So we're <laughs> we're January thirtieth. We fly to Buenos Aires. Uh, you know, we'll go Buenos Aires, Argentina. Yeah, they said it better than I did. All right. Uh, and then you take another flight to Ushtushaya which is kind of like the lowest point in South America. Um, you know, we'll go down through Patagonia and Devil's Pass uh, by boat, and then you boat down to Antarctica. Wow, that's cool. Yeah. Um, the the packing list was incredible. You know, they're like, you bring this or you're going to freeze to death. Yeah. So. <laughs> yeah, see the penguins. Right. Well, anyway, uh, yeah, that's cool. And I hope I hope I get a chance to talk to you after that so we can hear about uh, Antarctica. Sure. Uh, but also, um, okay, back to eSports for a minute. Um, because I actually consulted some friends who, 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 who know you and know NRG sports and just have all sorts of questions. Oh, but good. one of the things, uh, one of my friends, uh, I'll give a shout out to my friend Micah, who, who plays a lot of eSports. Um, he was asking, apparently, you know, there's a lot more talent in Korea and China. You mentioned Korea. Mm-hmm. And, and by talent, I assume these are the Players. people playing the yeah. games. Uh, and, and what can we do? Uh, to improve American talent. Yeah, so the the reason, and it, it's actually kind of shifting, right? If you look at like who's winning the League of Legends World Championships now, the past couple of years it's been China. Um, South Korea had a real benefit in that they, like at a very early point in, in gaming history, they kind of adopted it and kind of made it a part of their culture. It's an endemic piece of their culture. If you go, if you've ever been to South Korea, you know you can't walk around the corner with running into a. They're called PC bangs, right? It's just like a cyber cafe where kids come in and play all day. Um, and so it's it's been an endemic part of their culture um, for much longer than it's been in the United States, despite you know America making most of the games. Um, so it's. A lot of it's a time thing, right? You know, like as video games become more acceptable, as parents look at their kids and realize, 
you know, this kid playing video games 10 hours a day might find a career somewhere in video games, whether it's playing professionally or, you know, eventually getting into the development side of things or there's, you know, huge businesses around video games. But a lot of it's a time. Um, a lot of it's, you know, how we approach coaching and things versus how, you know, um, the Koreans or the Chinese kind of approach coaching. We have a huge problem, you know, um, we bring players, we import them from South America, essentially, right? Get them, uh, actually it's get like them, baseball, huh? Yeah, no, you get them yeah. P1A visas. You actually get them professional sports visas to, to come over here wow. and play for you. It's a huge mess. But uh, they get they come over here and they don't do as well, right? Because we're so lax in our, in you know, in our coaching and our practicing systems. Um, and so, like... So we need better coaches, we need better coaches. We need like the philosophy behind, yeah. you know, like continuous improvement. Um, you know, we have these guys who look at, you know, sports psychology or like, you know, the six Sigma of, you know, like, you know, like constant, you know, uh, constant improvement, um, iterative improvement rather. Um, but it's going to take time and yeah. you see it happening, right? Like we're le- like, even the Europeans were better than us. And now that's kind of leveling out and it's also game specific, right? Um, like the Europeans are almost unequivocally better at everybody, including the Chinese and Koreans at first-person shooter games, the strategy games the the Koreans do better at. Um, so you, you talked a little bit about the culture, and that's kind of interesting because if you're a parent today in the United States uh-huh. and you see your kid playing video games, sure, and you're like, you know, okay, that's enough. But but actually, this could be a career now, and you know. Um, we were talking earlier here about, you know, parents maybe that want to get their kids into music. Maybe it's playing the piano, or whatever, because it, it can have a lot of adaptive abilities to so many other things. Maybe maybe even be a musician, but um, but you can learn. You can be, maybe be better in math and other things like that. Sure. Uh, I don't know if parents see that or if there's any correlations there with, with video games. But, you know, obviously people are making lots of money. In uh, in the gaming industry, people are competing as as uh, right. as as players. All these things. So, if you're a parent today, and your son or daughter is getting into these uh, games, um, what what should you think? Should you be encouraging this? Should what what I mean? How how should people be approaching it in the culture? Yeah, I I I, I don't see a very good reason to not you know encourage your kid, especially if they're in, enjoying it. There's super valuable skills that you learn from playing video games. There's problem type, you know, problem solving skills that you learn. You know, if you saw your kid, and we discussed this earlier, if you saw your kid playing the piano for 16 hours a day, you're not going to think much of it besides like my kid's a prodigy. And if I was going to make a joke about it, I would say, you know, how many wealthy piano players do you know versus wealthy video game players right now? I'm sure if you compared them side by side, there's a lot more people making money in video games than there are playing piano. Um, And if that's their goal, their goal is to make money, you know, it's maybe something to look at. Um, does it also help um, by playing the game? I don't know, you know, on the other side of it, if it's coding or whatever it is. Sure. Does it also help people understand how to make games? So I don't know if it if it intrinsically allows them to understand how games are made, right? That's a, you know, a development and a programmatic thing. And I think mm-hmm. that's a, almost a school, a schooling problem. Like, I don't think they properly teach, like, the logic of programming in, in you know, under, you know, like lower than the college level. Um, and I wish they did. Like, I think if every kid walked out of college understanding like the IFTT part of logic, right. You know, if this, then that, um, 
I think the kids would be a, a lot better off. Um, that's a whole conversation about education yeah. and, and, and schooling there. Like there are programming boot camps that do better than kids with software, you know, software development degrees in college. Um, so one sorry. of the things I like to also ask people, you know, here is, you know, advice you might give to other entrepreneurs. So if you want to be broad about that, go ahead. But also maybe if you want to be specific about advice you might give who's, to somebody who wants to get into the gaming industry, uh, first of all, what type of uh, roles within the gaming industry they might pursue that are maybe sure. uh, there's some, some demand for or something. But but anyway, what, what would be some of these steps uh, that people might take to, to find themselves in that career? Yeah. So, you know, there, there's a lot of role, like these video gaming companies, even esports teams, they are businesses. And we need people with real skills outside of the ability to play a video game. You know, we need the accountants. We need, you know, people who can do marketing, who can do analysis. You know, there's so there's the sports side of it, you know, where we need analysts and coaches and, you know, all of that kind of infrastructure, player management, um, and then there's a business side. These are businesses and lots of them are not profitable, right? Like they're still like, it's super cool to see these companies, you know, hey, X company raised 60 million bucks, you know, in a series F or something, right? right? Like that probably means your company's not profitable. And so there's a real profitability question around a lot of these businesses. And, you know, it's going to be the young people who understand the general, you know, the general culture of gaming who are going to answer those questions for us. Like, it's not going to be me, yeah. right? It's not going to be, you know, a lot of the older leaders in the in the space um, that are really going to answer those questions. It's really going to be, you know, a younger generation of people that are going to solve those problems for us. Yeah, and by the way, uh, I also understand that in the esports arena, I guess, there's a lot of, like, influencers who are getting on these games that I don't know if they're good at playing or not. Um, also, I know like political influencers like AOC, for example, sure. has gotten into some of yeah, these games. Yeah, she sucks at League, but she sucks. It's great but, that she's playing. But like when these influencer type people get in there, I mean, is it just is it is it for them to attract attention? Is it to are they, you know? I'm sure as a politician, she can't get paid to play. I don't I don't it's know how that works. Certainly but, not legal, right? No. Uh, so, but it, but if like maybe there was like some big influencer that was maybe being paid. Um, is it helpful to the games? I mean, how's that, why why are influencers getting involved in some of these? Games? Well, so it's it's mutually beneficial on both sides, right? Like Ninja would not be as massively successful as he is without Fortnite, and Fortnite gets the visibility from him. Um, specifically, then you know Twitch or you know YouTube or whatever, you know they have a monetization method of showing advertisements and things like that. So it's a whole ecosystem, yeah. um, and everybody needs each other. You need the guy to promote the business. You need the platform to have to be able to provoke the business and the and the influencer. So this is just a huge industry, um, gaming and everything. And, and you've been you've been seeing you've been at the top of the rise of it for, for some time, Gerard. And so it's been really uh, a pleasure to have you on here. Um, can you just give us one last insight into uh, this virtual reality? I mean, I know what you're doing with Havoc and everything, but where is virtual reality going for everybody? I know we got the metaverse and all these things. Tell, tell, yeah, so tell us what role that's going to play in our society. I, I think in, in the future, and you know, when I say the future, I don't know if it's a year or ten years. You know, some of it's, you know, a technology problem where hardware hasn't caught up yet um, to do what we think we, it can do. I invested with one of my business partners a year of my time to look at this virtual reality system that we want to develop, and we just eventually decided the technology was not available today with what we want to do. We run into that problem every day with Havoc, but it's going to become a way more integrated part of our lives, you know, just like how, you know, cryptocurrency has has taken over so many aspects of, you know, not even just the financial market, right? You have, you know, 
gaming, you have, you know, there's just a million, a million part, a million pieces to that web, you know, 3.0 kind of, uh, kind of environment, but you can expect over time for virtual reality to really become integrated. Bill Gates just made a statement about how, you know, we're hoping he hopes that VR can really replace like the need to be in an office while still providing people that sense of office community. Um, don't expect it to go away while it hasn't had mass adoption yet. It's gonna. And if you're not able to catch up to it, you're not able to use it or understand it. You know, like you're going to be like your grandma who couldn't understand email 10 years ago. Yeah. By the way, when we were on our Fearless Journeys group trip, one of the things that happens when you travel, right? You get into lots of great conversations. And we had a whole debate amongst us travelers about uh, virtual reality and the role that it will play in travel. Um, because you're going to Antarctica, Antarctica in, mm-hmm. uh, in January, but... Do you really need to go there if you could just put on a set of goggles or something and, and so, experience it like so, an so all the answer is yes, please. <laughs> but, but there is a parallel to those experiences. Have you seen like the Van Gogh Museum v- virtual reality experience they do? It is amazing. Like it is it is way cooler than looking at a, uh, at, a, at, a at a Van Gogh painting, right? I've seen Starry Night up close, right? Walking into a virtual reality of Starry Night and just being able to walk through it is a different experience. I think they had that in Orlando recently, right? Uh, I think they did. I don't. I've, I've seen it in like three different states. Yeah. Um, but it's actually funny. We were having this debate. I love traveling. I was like, "There's no way you can replace the re- the real travel experience with uh, with a set of goggles." But what's interesting? But there's things is, you can do in VR that you can't do in real life either, right? Yeah. I can fly around the treetops in the rainforest instead of walking around them or doing a guided tour, producing a Ferngully game or something like that to. Uh, um, to bring awareness to, you know, like the environmental problems in the rainforest. And we actually intend to probably sell some NFTs to go buy rainforest property to stop it from being plowed down. Yeah. Um, so there's things that, that nothing's going to replace the experience of going to the rainforest and feeling, smelling and, you know, being there. Right. Or, and, you know, even if we get to the haptics and, you know, smell and feel of virtual reality, there's a difference between being there and experiencing it in virtual reality. It's not reality. There's things that you can do in virtual reality that you're never going to be able to do. Yeah, that's a really good point. And those yeah. things need to be embraced as well. Well, it's funny because in 2018, I went to Israel, and part of my trip, I went to the Church of the Holy Sepulchre, right? This is where, it's on the site of where Jesus was crucified yep, and there. also in tomb, right? Yeah. And at the end of 2018, Marshall, who's here, I think you were with me in Washington, D.C., we went to the National Geographic Museum, and he had been to Israel a few years earlier. And we go, and they actually have the virtual reality experience of, of the it. Church of the Holy Sepulchre. You done that? Yep. Mm-hmm. And I walked in, and I was just there like a few months earlier, and I put these things on, and I said, "Oh my gosh, I feel like I'm—I literally feel like I'm right back where I was a couple mm-hmm. months ago." And um, now, what you said, like I don't think there's anything that can replace the real experience, of but course. I had the real experience, and then I had this virtual experience, and I was like, "Well, this is pretty close to yeah. to being there that you can get." And and we're at the very early stages of this, so I can't imagine in some years where, where from it's going to go in twenty yeah. years, where technology is going to go in twenty years. I had the same experience with Yad Vashem, the the Holocaust Museum in uh, in Israel. Like they have a virtual reality ver- version of it, and like I got a private tour. I was the only person in Yad Vashem. Um, a, pr- a private tour of Yavashim, and then I later went and did the virtual reality piece to it, and it was flabbergasting. Yeah, I was like, "Wow!" I, and like, like I said, I literally walked through there with a tour guide, and I was the only person there. And in the virtual reality experience, I was like, "I didn't notice this," or you know, like oh, yeah. I literally because some guy went on top and photographed this statue that they had. I was able to come up and look down on top of it and say, "Oh, check out the cracks from you know this weathered <laughs> you know this weathered this weathered statue over a thousand years." Yeah. So, like I said, there's things that you can do in reality. There's things that you can do in virtual reality, and you're going to need both of them to have you know or 
there's a valued experience in both of them. Yeah. Well, uh, one of the things, uh, uh, the class I've taught this last year on entrepreneurship and innovation, we constantly talk about uh, change is something that is is a constant, right? Change is always happening, but innovation doesn't necessarily happen. It cre- it, it, it needs people and it needs people to collaborate and, and, and learn from each other and learn by doing and things like that. So uh, that, that's an important thing that I just want to make yeah. a statement about. So when we were doing research on this, on this game that we just, it's not a game, it was an experience a thing that we decided not to pilot. Uh, we went and talked to NASA in Texas and, you know, they take in all this grant money and they do like, they, they, you know, trial and error, all this research and development stuff that never makes it into production. Like it doesn't matter that it never makes it into production. Like we do it, we publish the findings on it or we, you know, we, we release the technology on it and then hopefully it gets commercialized and people adopt it. Like, People look at you know the value of technology from a commercialization perspective, and that's oftentimes not where the innovation comes from. Commercialization certainly provides you know the need for something sometimes, but there are a lot of people pushing technology for the sake of pushing technology. Like Elon Musk is a super super good example of that, right? Like he wants to put chips in people's head. He has the boring company. You know, you can buy a flamethrower from him, and you know he's. You know the reality of Tesla of its value, right? They make their value by selling the the environmental tokens of you know for their for their cars they produce. Like he's doing it to push the envelope. Now he just happens to have created the most valuable automobile company in the world, but like he's really driving that innovation. If he didn't do that, do you think GMC would say, "Hey, we're going to be fully electric by thirty forty or whatever it is"? No, of course not. Yeah, he's driving so, it for the whole market. Yeah, right. Exactly. He's he's really innovating that space, and he's making everybody else come along with him. Yeah. Well, we've got a, a few people here. Uh, does Does anybody have any questions uh, for Gerard? We just got a few minutes left here. If anyone's got anything. Uh, yeah. So R- Team Rubicon. Yeah. So it's a uh, it's a largely veteran run organization that does. Um, you know, disaster re- like disaster resource management and search and rescue and things like that. Uh, super cool org- organization. Check it out. Um, it's entirely volunteer, um, and they they do a lot of good. You don't have to be a veteran to get involved. You don't have to really do anything. You know, they give you like a background check and a you, you could take these classes and you can you can be sent off and you know you can go to Kentucky and you know go clear off the streets or go make sure that somebody can get back in their house by you know clearing the you know the down tree in their house. It's super cool. Yeah, so, so I mean, as we're recording this just a week or so ago, with those devastating uh, tornadoes in, in uh, Kentucky, and Team Rubicom's on the ground there, right? They were, yeah. In, yeah. in every, so I, I've been to lots of disaster sites, and they are oftentimes there before FEMA even gets there. Yeah. Well, Gerard, what's really amazing, uh, oh, we got a question for you from Michaela. Yeah, it's so just just to reiterate, since uh, she wasn't on the mic here, I just want to make sure. Yeah, how do you balance all these things that you want to do when you when you have all, all sorts of things? Maybe it's family life or other other priorities to do all these crazy things that Gerard's doing. Yeah, and what is your priority list? So if you have, see, and, and you know, mine is probably much different for somebody that is you know really looking to launch you know launch their new business. I'm not looking to launch a new business anymore, right? I've kind of been down that road and. You know, there are more, not to say more impactful things, but there are more meaningful things to me. But that is a super difficult question. And, and every day I'm, you know, I'm, I'm crossed between, between that problem, right? I want to be able to spend time with my family and friends. I want to be able to do something good. I want to be able to make money. I have, I just bought a business so that my sister and her husband can run it to, uh, you know, so they can have a, you know, wealth of their own and, and, also you know, and also exercise. Um, but it, like, 
you really just have to set that priority list and say, like, do I want this business or do I want to go donate my time? I know that I have a limited amount of time left with my mom, so this needs to be slid up there. And then there, you know, find the ideas that you're really passionate about. And, you know, most successful businesses are really about scale, right? So if you have a business that ha- or you have an idea, you know, great partners, you know, great business partners, people that you can hand stuff off. Like I come up with an idea and I hand it off to Todd and he puts it on paper and I hand it off to my, I hand that off to my buddy, Nick, who, you know, looks at the operations of it and handles it all. And, you know, no man is an Island, right? You're not doing anything by yourself. Um, that's, and that's like, you know, before, you know, like I've, I've put a lot of my time, a hundred percent of my time into very specific things and ran every element of it. Um, and that works, right? That's how NRG came to be. But now, you know, it's a, it's a scale thing and my interests aren't necessarily in this one neat idea, right? But it's a, you're, as an entrepreneur, you're going to forever deal with that. Like, it's just a reality of the situation. And I think some of it's harmful, like this whole, like, you have to work 90 hours a week because of this, like, hustle culture kind of deal. I actually hate that. Like, if you're working 90 hours a week in your business, you've done something wrong. You're not, you're not delegating properly. You don't have the right team around you, you know, and a real business you should be able to walk away from for a, a given period of time, a month, and it should keep running, right? Um, that's the operations side of this. Obviously, founding a company and starting a business, that may not be true, but yeah. Yeah, the, when you're founding and you're starting it, maybe it's just you, that's it. You're everything, right? Yeah, of right? course. <laughs> but then when you, yeah, when you move on and you're, you got to delegate, uh, that's good. Uh, any uh, any final questions from anybody? Marshall? So one, one question that I would have for you is, uh, and you kind of touched on this uh, subtly a little bit earlier, but uh, when somebody gets to a, uh, a certain age, whether, whether it's 35, 45, or 70, and they've been very successful, uh, some people will decide to go on vacation for the rest of their lives and do nothing. Now, the, uh, that is wonderful, and some people enjoy uh, doing that, but others also uh, continue to uh, 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 start businesses mm-hmm. and uh, branch out into new fields. Do you believe that uh, that's the way to go as an entrepreneur who's been successful uh, to continue uh, ad- advancing uh, in other fields and other businesses? You know, like, and yes, like there, there is a valid, you know, there's a hundred ways to, you know, to, to answer any, any question, right? I personally, and you know, I'm, we didn't talk about it at all because I have no desire to talk about it. I have, you know, done a 100% 180 in the environment that I'm going to spend my time in, you know, moving into the near future. I'm actually, I had to go back to college to go accomplish some of these things uh, because I needed some classes for a particular fellowship that I was attempting to do. But there are lots of people who are lifelong entrepreneurs that, you know, they're able to put an idea together, you know, build the company, move on and, and go do that again. And if you have another idea, it's all personal preference. And, you know, there are people who they want to do that. You know, when they hit 40, they, you know, they didn't have the heart attack epiphany that I had about how I want to spend the rest of my life. They already figured that out. I am the world's slowest learner. I'm still, you know, like I've, this year I've made some of the dumbest mistakes in my life. And that's like, that's a, that's a huge accomplishment, you know, like, cause I've made some massive mistakes in my life. Um, so it's all, it's all personal preference and how you want to spend your time. Well, um, do we have any other questions? Uh, Suki, you got a question? I was actually just curious about, um, so how many people exactly work with you? And for how long they've been uh, working with you? And um, yeah, I, I was just curious about the um, this. So the different companies that I own have, you know, varying amount of employees and lots of contractors. I have a 
fairly small group of people who have kind of collected along along my way who um you know who i i really get my mind share of things with like todd has has been with me for a few years now i have another guy nick who's been with me for a long time now and um you know i have a handful of other people that i'm common collaborators with there's uh my business partner michael holthouse um it's a oil guy in texas but um one of the most interesting people you'd ever meet in your life um you know I have those kind of core people who, you know, I really try to make sure that benefit along with me in, in, the, in the things that I achieve or, or don't achieve. Um, you know, oftentimes when I start a new venture, I will give them shares of the company along with, you know, obviously, you know, money to work them or, or whatever. Um, and I try to, you know, encourage them to, you know, for the most part, they run the companies is, is the reality, right? Um, I'm able to put things in place, leverage my relationships and, you know, kind of get the ball rolling. And then these people keep the ball moving, but that, but that group is small. Um, and that's mostly just because I have a, like, I've found that I have a super limited bandwidth for people interaction. Um, I'm a, I, I know I seem like a super outgoing person, but like I get like my battery just runs super low, super quick. So like on any given day full of meetings and stuff like that, like I oftentimes just cash out. I'm like, you know what? I'm canceling this meeting. I don't care. It's not good for me. Um, I'm going to, you know, I'm going to go do something else. And I'll walk into the room with Todd and be like, hey, we're going to go do something really dumb today. Let's go pack up our stuff and hit the road and go figure something out. Fun to do. Uh, but lots of employees. Um only a couple that like I really engage with on a on a normal level, and they probably all have to kind of bend to my needs and not bend to. That's a really bad way to say it. Like they all know how to deal with me. Todd knows my faults. My business partner Nick, who has made this year, like I said, he's he's made a lot of money this year, um, and he did it by really just kind of taking the initiative on a couple of these these items and running with it, and then kind of really just come back and saying, "Hey, look what I did," and this is how it is. Um, but he knows how to deal with me. He knows like when my attention span has been done or I'm not interested in something, but he knows that it's a good idea, right? Um, same, like I said, same with Todd, same with my sister even. My sister was a nurse um, and she was just really not happy with her life. And a couple of years ago, I brought her on to bookkeep in, my, in one of my companies. Now she bookkeeps across all of my companies. She's now running a new business and you know her husband works for one of those companies and... Um, She's really just been able to like. She really knows how to deal with me. You know, she knows. She's like, I think I like you know knocked her two front teeth out when we were ten, and so she really knows how to deal with me. She knows who I am, and she really accepts any of my faults. Um, and so yeah, uh, a few people, but you know you have to touch a lot of like a lot of different people and a lot of different things. So first of all, your interview was uh, amazing. It's always great to hear entrepreneurs. So this is actually a, a question from a friend who um, is in this industry or Asking wants to get involved gotcha. in this industry. Um, and they want to know, what is your gift for networking? As you have talked throughout this whole podcast, um, what you have talked about is meeting these amazing people. And so as an entrepreneur, sometimes people don't necessarily know how to meet these people. Yeah. How do you end up with these connections? How do you meet the Rick Fox? How do you, what, what rooms are you in? What should they be doing? Uh, there's an elevator speech. What should they be doing to meet these people to then put them in these types yeah. of positions where you are? So that is a phenomenal question. One of my, uh, one of the people who own a much, a TSM, the, 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 the esports team uh andy din um kids a decade younger than i am and worth 500 million dollars um or something crazy like that 
um, he once told me, he said, you know, like the, the thing about you and like we met because of this. He's like, you can walk into a room not knowing somebody and in an hour you will be at the upper echelon of that, you know, of 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 of, of the the circle of that room. He's like, you know, you went and did this thing in Vegas and all of a sudden you're, you know, you're having dinner with Bobby Baldwin, the guy who owns MGM and, you know, uh, I like I said, like Patrick Simshong, one of the richest people in, in Los Angeles, I, you know, met through a, you know, met through a third hand resource and ended up, you know, now like in business with him and like, there was a point during COVID when it was like me and three other people, four other people who were able to like go to his house because he was, he's a doctor, right? He was concerned about COVID. And I remember like walking into his house and like them literally spraying us down with, you know, antiseptic stuff to make sure we weren't passing COVID off. Um, And I I think it boils down to, you know, I'm too dumb for failure, right? Like for failure to bother me. Um, And it's about taking risks. I don't like, and maybe it's like a personal flaw. Like I don't weigh consequences properly, right? Um, And, you know, I, up until recently, like I never researched or like, uh, like rehearsed, you know, conversations or business plans. I mean, I like obviously put together business plans, but I never like rehearsed the conversation going into it. Like I didn't rehearse anything for this meeting because like I have no freaking clue. You have no, right? no idea. How uh, long it took me to get even any bit of background he didn't, information? Yeah, he didn't get my background <laughs> until like last night at nine forty-five because I was playing some League of Legends. I was like, I was like I met you one time like ten months ago, and like maybe yeah. I need some more information. Um, but it's uh, and I know we're running long, and I'm sorry, but uh, this is great. It's yeah, like it, like you, like I said, no, you know, nobody's an island. Nobody accomplishes anything by themselves, no matter how smart they are, right? Like Elon Musk didn't make Tesla, right? He bought it. Um, you know, he invested in PayPal with a bunch of other people. And I, I, you know, it's, it's about, you know, maintaining relationships and, you know, you know, helping people when you have the ability to help them. And I actually learned that at a, at a very old age, right? Like I, the amount of bridges that I burned in my early businesses is just astronomically high because I, I was looking at like, you know, the contract value of something or the monetary value of something. And once that was done, I was out of it, you know, uh, like that, that happened in NRG. I really disagreed with everybody. Uh, and right or wrong, right, you know, that d- doesn't matter. You know, the bad taste that you leave in somebody's mouth will close a door, you know. Like, I, you have a bad relationship with somebody, they're going to say it, right? Like, they're going to tell their friends. Um, and that's happened to me on more than one occasion, you know. And I learned, I was like, you know, I also, like, when I really started to value people, right, like, that really changed how I was able to open a lot of doors, Um you know, people were able to say, hey, Gerard helped me in this situation. You know, Brad, right? Brad belongs to this super small community of special operators. And yesterday I was on a, on the phone with, like, guys from SEAL Team 6 and Delta Force. And, you know, Brad vouches for me. And now I can call them, like, hey, I need something. And, you know, but the reality is everybody always wants a connection and always wants to help somebody, right? Um, so you have to just make sure that you're helping somebody. So when you're prepared to ask them for help, they're going to help you. Yeah, that's a great, great, um, great answer. Great question, Michaela, and there's, great answer, yeah. There's, uh, who is it? It was, oh my gosh, why am I brain from The comedian, my favorite comedian, Dave Chappelle. Yeah, he said, like, he said a line in a, in a, in his comedy stand-up the other day, and it was about a trans woman, is and the argument's irrelevant. Yeah, he just got me canceled, all right. But he said, he said, hey, like, I'm having a human experience, and like, you got to understand that like everybody's got a whole bunch of stuff going on. So if you can help them, if you can engage with their lives, they're going to be more inclined to help you and that you're going to have a relationship with them. 
So I hope that doesn't, you can edit that out. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, that was great. No, and that's totally true. Well, Gerard, uh, I think we're going to bring the plane in for, for a landing here. Uh, not quite into Antarctica yet, but uh, the slowest learner in the world. I heard you describe yourself as the slowest learner in the world. Maybe a lot of us just need to slow down because... Uh, because I'm also super bad at that. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. yeah. So, And then you also said you're too dumb for failure to bother me. Yeah. So, uh, you know, you have some humility here, I think, too. And I think that is something with a lot Accuracy, of, a lot of uh, entrepreneurs yeah. that have a good sense of humility. Because uh, also, you know, we talked about, you know, always learning from others, always observing from people in the room. Um, and, and also, um, you know, the one thing I heard there in some of your last couple uh, – answers to those questions where you're, you know, you're really in, interested in relationships with people, but also, you know, how to delegate to people, um, within your business. And, and maybe that empowers some of the people and empowers the companies. It also allows you to do a lot more things, uh, when you're able to teach, uh, others and, and delegate those, those, those things. So, um, you know, I just think that, uh, this has been a, a really great lesson for a lot of us in, in a lot of what we heard from you and your journey and your story. And you're only 41, 40, 40, 40. I'm sorry. I don't want to advance you to yet. Uh, you're only 40 years old. Like on uh, top of the hill. And, and you had some wake up calls there that also made you think about maybe prioritizing some other things in sure. life too. So I think that's great too. So I just want to say thank you. And if you have any last words, uh, Gerard for, for us or for our listeners or anything, uh, feel free to throw them in there. Yeah, I don't have like any like words of wisdom to impart. I think everything that I've said and everything you just said about me, like, I think if I listened to that on a regular basis, I would probably do a lot better as well. Um, you know, everybody's always the, you know, their biggest critic and, you know, everybody gives advice better than receiving it. But I really appreciate you having me on here. And uh, yeah. Like, yeah, well, I appreciate your time, Gerard. So Gerard Kelly, uh, entrepreneur, innovator, gaming industry, coach, commentator, broadcaster, uh, Antarctic explorer. Uh, he's also search and rescue. <laughs> We've heard a lot of things here. It's probably gone two hours or so now, but, uh, but it's, uh, it's been fantastic. And I thank everybody here in the room for coming to the hundredth episode of the agents of innovation podcast. I think we did pretty well with our 100th guest. So thank you so much, Gerard. Cool. And we'll see you, uh, on the next series of, yeah, actually I have a, I have a Guatemala series of podcasts coming up so everybody can. Everybody can stay tuned for that. But uh, for now, uh, we'll just uh, we'll just wait for the book to come out. Cool. That's uh, all right. Thank you. Thank you, Gerard. Thanks, brother. Appreciate it. Look in your eyes. It confuses me. Do you feel what I feel when you kiss me? You want me to go, but you don't want me to leave. Want me gone so bad you had my keys If you only knew How much I loved you If I only knew How much you wanted to go But you wouldn't tell me
How could I not see the one inside Of a dying love from only one side Who loves 